G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or whatever generic fruit-based device you have. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. We don't ask for much in return. In fact, in fact, I don't think we ask for anything, bro, do we? Then we'd be incredibly grateful if you could uh, go to uh, the Apple Podcast or iTunes and, and leave us a review. Obviously, a, a five-star review would be great, and uh, we're pretty fortunate having a, a, a couple uh, more reviews uh, this this week, which is uh, which is fantastic. I think I think one or two might be under duress, but we, we won't uh, we won't go into that. Um, so uh, uh, so a couple of five-star reviews. One from uh, Doctor Sissi uh, Mello. One have listened to these for a number of years and think they're brilliant, very informative, great topic choices, and perfect for long drives. Which is uh, which is good. I suppose it's either driving or cooking. That I think that most people uh, listen to podcasts. And then uh, Elliot uh, Neber, interesting name, um, says uh, a great uh, re- resurrection of the RBC podcast, simulating interviews and good questions. Uh, Intermix, glad Dom is sticking with a date, fame it alone principle. Perhaps there is an ECC sign off in the future. Uh, sorry, perhaps there's an ECC spin-off in the future. Um, so one suggestion, release topic of the next week to allow subscribers to send some questions or create space um, uh, to ask questions after the show. I think it's a, it's a great idea, Elliot, and uh, and thanks for that. And we'll, we'll probably try and create something um, on the page in the future to allow some some discussion about what we're um, what we're talking about. Um, and I'm not sure how organised uh, we will we will be to uh, to put up things prior to it, but maybe sometimes we we can. Um, so um, many, many thanks. So today we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Duana McBride on um, approach to blood gas analysis. So thank you very much, Duana, for, for joining us. Oh, thank you, Tom. So uh, I, I suppose um, there's a, a number of a number of questions. I think I'm, I remember. Uh, um, I suppose not not necessarily having blood gas or looking at that prior probably to coming to the RBC. So so it's quite daunting in a in a number of ways, isn't it? And, a, and you know how much information we get out of blood gas. But I suppose maybe we could we could start by like classically like what do people look at blood gas for? Okay. Um, I suppose I only started looking at blood gases when I started doing emergency medicine and then even further when I started um, working in more busy ICUs. And so it's the main things that we look at or the way the way that I like to approach it is, you know, do we want an arterial blood gas in which case, you know, we're looking at oxygenation and it helps me work up a case, you know, how bad is the patient and also helps with my differential diagnosis as well. The other um, spin-off is that we can perform a venous blood gas analysis um, and then we can look at the whole metabolic components, including it, how critical the patient is, as well as working out, okay, actually, why is this patient sick and how can I correct these uh, metabolic abnormalities quickly? Excellent, excellent. I, I, I was just listening to you and said I, I introduced you as uh, Dr. Duane McBride, but I didn't say what, what you are. You're, you're one of our uh, one of our great lecturers in emergency and critical care here at the RBC, and have trained extensively across the across the globe in, uh, in emergency and critical care. So uh, apologies for not <laughs> saying that before, but but absolutely, absolutely right, Duane. And, and the uh, um, I suppose like classically when we look at arterial uh, blood gas, so we're looking at oxygenation levels, and I suppose that so so for those people that don't necessarily have 
have um, um, or, or have limited experience with blood gas. And I suppose what we're concerned about in, in general are that the pH of the of, of the of the results that it gives us, the oxygen um, partial pressure of oxygen that's dissolved in in blood, the partial pressure of carbon dioxide that's dissolved in blood, um, as well as other either calculated or electrolytes that we see. So things like sodium, potassium, chloride, calcium, magnesium, sometimes and uh, and and lactate our old uh, beloved friend in fact maybe we could talk about lactate another time um but um so when you when you look at that so how how do you actually uh, like look at, at the results so what do you what do you sequentially go through in your mind when you're having a look at these okay all right I think we should start with venous blood gas first, if that's oh, all right. Yeah, okay, because um, I think that's probably one that we'll do the most commonly. Mm. Um, and so, if I have a really sick patient, um, you know, the claps are obtunded, I would want to obtain a venous blood gas because A, I want to know how critical the patient is, and also B, I want to know what's going on. Um, so, I, I'm a very simple person, I like to th take things step by step, um, and my step by step approach would be is a first look at what the pH is um, roughly and it really depends on which machine you have each machine has slightly different reference intervals but broadly speaking a normal pH for a dog and cat is roughly somewhere between 7.35 to 7.45 um, so I keep that that range in my mind so if the pH is low they're acidemic and if the pH is high they're alkalemic um, it's really important to look at this because I think a patient cannot survive, um, animal or human cannot survive if the pH is less than 6.8. So if they're even approaching that figure, I'll be really, really worried about the patient. So I would say anything but below 7.1, I think they need immediate attention there. Okay, so if we've got a patient who's, say, pH is less than, you know, 7.1, then I need to start to troubleshoot and say, ask myself, you know, why is this patient acidemic? You know, most of the time our patients are going to be more, more acidemic than alkalemic, so I'm going to take the acidemic road today. Um, so step two would be um, I want to look at the metabolic component. So what's the metabolic component of the animal doing? Um, and the two figures that you can see on a blood gas analysis is the bicarbonate and the base excess. So um, the I people, the students and residents, and everyone always ask me, you know, what is what's the difference between the bicarbonate and the base excess? You know, why do we have to look at the two? Really, um, gosh, I need a, a whiteboard here <laughs> to, to um, um, write this equation. But um, anyway, if anyone knows a carbonic anhydride equation, you can go and have a Google of that up. But really, the bicarbonate is affected by our respiratory tract um, due to the carbon dioxide. So looking at the base excess is actually more accurate if we want to, say, ask ourselves, you know, is, does it have a metabolic acidosis or alkalosis? So this, um, you can also look at the bicarbonate as well to see if there's metabolic acidosis or alkalosis, but just keep in mind that sometimes that can be influenced by our carbon dioxide. So the third step is um, to look at the respiratory component, which is our carbon dioxide. 
So I'm going to ask myself, you know, is there a metabolic acidosis going on? So if the CO2 is high, that's going to cause an acidotic process. Well, if the CO2 is low, it's going to cause an alkalosis process. Okay, so there are three steps. What is a pH? What's a metabolic component doing? And three, what's our respiratory component doing? And my fourth step is what matches the pH? Does the metabolic component match the, the pH or does the respiratory component match the pH? So, for example, if the bicarbonate is low, that's going to cause uh, metabolic um, acidosis and which is going to cause the pH to be low as well. So in that case, we have uh, um, metabolic acidosis going on. If the CO2 is high and the pH is a 7.1, which we talked about, then we've got a respiratory acidosis going on. Um, and so um, then we can say, okay, A, it's got a metabolic acidosis or, you know, it may have a respiratory acidosis. Um, and if we want to complicate things, um, then we can, we can ask ourselves, is um, a compensation process going on in there? So, you know, if I have a metabolic acidosis going on, what my lungs are going to do is going to try to compensate for that by actually bringing your CO2 down. The reverse things will happen. Say if there's a respiratory acidosis going on, the kidneys is trying to going to retain your, your bicarbonate and try to cause a more metabolic alkalotic process going on um, um, to compensate for the respiratory acidosis. I can probably see your minds all jumbled up by now. Um, I have to admit it's much easier if we have a whiteboard or PowerPoint in front, but I hope you get the the idea. I, I think that's uh, that's a, a great uh, explanation. I'm sure people can can go through that in their mind or or, or re-listen to it or look at the uh, carbonic anhydrase um, uh, um, equation as you as you as you said. So so you, so primarily, I suppose you obviously pH is uh, a, a, um, a very important for all our enzymatic functions, which is why like if we become acidotic, things don't work, and and hence we it's going to be our, our demise. And uh, it, I think that definitely and people that get very concerned don't they with ph is sort of uh, mildly low whereas we, we see a lot of patients that um have quite significant acid-based disturbances probably reflecting of the disease processes they have and the length of time that they've had those prior to like coming to us i, I suppose maybe they're just maybe they're just sicker or maybe that's just the population of patients that we see mm. who, who who knows but but yeah absolutely say that you know the primary process is it acidotic alkalotic and is it respiratory or, or, or metabolic you know those are the those are the key constituents of, of that so can can you uh, maybe give me an example Don, of when when it's uh, like helped you with with uh, with like challenging cases about what to, you know is there other things that you can you can get out of uh, an acid base mm. yeah and that's what a lot of people ask me you know why are you always doing blood gas analysis probably almost every patient that comes to my emergency room gets a um at least a venous blood gas analysis there and um one of the actually important things, which often we're not 
taught so much at vet school, definitely not in my day 15 years ago, that it does also help us work out our differential diagnosis and help us work out actually what's causing the problem here. And um, I actually had a prime example when I um, first moved to the UK from Australia. I think it was like one of those really cold winters four or five years ago when there was still snow around the RVC. Anyway, um, this dog presented with um, weird neurological signs, walking around the room. I don't think it was blind, but, you know, it kept on constantly going to the bucket of water, wanting to drink. Um, And so we performed a blood gas analysis in that um, little dog. And um, it was a bit weird. Um, Kind of looked at it, couldn't really work out what was going on neurologically. But looking at the blood gas analysis, we noticed actually had quite a uh, moderate to significant metabolic acidosis. Um, And if we get a patient like that, you know, my my next step would be to determine what's causing it. Um, And we can divide blood gas, uh, metabolic acidosis into either a high anion gap metabolic acidosis or a normal anion gap metabolic acidosis. And we use electrolytes and our bicarbonate to calculate that. And this dog actually had quite a remarkably high anion gap metabolic acidosis. And the, um, the good thing about blood gas analysis is that only gives me four differentials. <laughs> opposed to, say, some complicated medicine patient. Um, so the four differentials for a high anion get metabolic acidosis, and I, I remember that acronym LUC, so L for lactate, U for urea, K for ketones, and E for ethylene glycol. And looking at the blood gas analysis, the lactate was actually normal. We can also measure urea on our analyzer, which was normal. Um, ketones, I was thinking, you know, could it be... Um, um, diabetes due to ketoacidosis, but actually the glucose was normal, which just left left me with E for ethylene glycol. And actually that was the first sign I, I or the first trigger, the bell that rang in my head, go, actually, this guy might have ethylene glycol toxicity. And when we did a workup from our blood gas analysis, you know, doing imaging studies, etc., the dog actually had ethylene glycol toxicity. So I always really remember that case because it really emphasises how we can use it to to work out our diagnosis. I suppose like specifically with something like ethylene glycol where a, a rapid diagnosis is incredibly useful to, to hopefully help start some therapy that, that might uh, help save that, that patient, but also the tests that we have for detecting ethylene glycol are, are not great themselves. We'll have some... Uh, you know, not not necessarily as as reliable. So, you, so you absolutely on clinical signs and that. That's, uh, mm. that's fantastic. Exactly. In this particular case, I mean, we always think you know the azotemic or you know whatever. Actually, we detected it before this dog became azotemic. Um, so, in that regards, I think using the blood gas in this case was quite important too. Life saving, I would say. Life saving. <laughs> So when you um, so you, that that's great, Joanna. Do, are there um, obviously you say look at blood gas uh, analysis and of all the, the patients that have come through? But I, I think some of the terminology that like we talk about blood gas, like we do, do use it as well for assessing oxygenation status. And and uh, um, but I suppose it's probably a less frequent use, right? But probably because that the difficulties, if that's the right word, in obtaining an arterial sample. Mm, 
correct. Um, so we've just talked about the venous, but when we're talking about the arterial, it can be really challenging. It's probably why we don't perform it very often. So um, the interesting things about the arterial system is, you know, if we if we try to stab it with a needle, the artery is very, um, what's the word, spasmodic, so it tries to um, bounce away from our needle. And that's really the key reason why um, it is actually difficult to obtain an arterial sample. Also, we're not relying on our visual cues of where the, the vessel is, opposed to when we're trying to take a venous sample of blood, you know, we can see where the, the vessel is, and also we're more practiced as well. Um, so what we're relying on is actually our digital palpation um, and, uh, I wouldn't say imagination... <laughs> But anatomical it, knowledge I yeah, think, our, yeah. Um, my very excellent anatomical knowledge yeah. of where that vessel will be yeah. um, and it does take a little bit of practice and a slightly different technique and that's why it's challenging but also when we're performing these tasks you know we need to think about you know what kind of stress are we putting on our little patients there so if you've got a really dyspneic animal is it actually safe to stress out that guy to actually get this arterial sample and and i suppose they're probably a lot of the limiting factors for it is it is it going to change what you do like if we're supplementing these guys with oxygen anyway because we're concerned about them like does it does it always uh, change what we do i suppose like what like with with every with every test and trying to trying to always think like so is, is what am i you know is the outcome from this test going to change what i'm what mm. i'm doing you know regardless of of uh, of of where we are what we have capable um you know at our at our fingertips as it as it were to to do yeah yeah, no, that's a, really, that's a really good point. And, um, you know, I always emphasise to the students, you know, every test that we perform, we need to be able to justify to the client, you know, the cost as well as the intervention to our patient. Um, I suppose, you know, you guys are probably thinking, well, why, we can just use pulse oxygen a pulse oximeter um, and I mean most of you will probably know that there are some limitations to the pulse oximetry especially in um, emergency and critical care I mean doing pulse oximetry in anesthesia is much much easier my patients aren't really moving I hope um, but in um, in our emergency patients you know they may be moving they may be panting and that may interfere um, Often there's poor perfusion to the periphery, which may interfere with our pulse oximetry, pigmentation, light, etc., etc. And so if we're not certain that our pulse oximeter is accurate and we're still not certain, you know, does this animal actually need oxygen? Are they actually hypoxemic or not? In those cases, I do think the arterial blood gas, if they're going to tolerate the sampling, can be, can be very useful. I mean, also, there's also, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, respiratory problems, there's, you know, I call them lookalikes. So that actually, actually, the respiratory system is completely normal, but they're a bit dyspneic. And so maybe that might help differentiate those cases. It definitely helps, like, ruling out things, as you said. But, like, great points about the pulse oximetry. I kind of always think in, in my mind it's the first because it's the least invasive way. So if, it, if you get a trace, and I, and I suppose how do we know that a trace is appropriate? But normally with pulse oximetry, you'd have a waveform. So if your perfusion's okay and you have a, a, a waveform that matches the heart rate of the patient then you kind of hope that it's uh it's a fairly good enough you know in, in most cases but yeah you know of, of course there's 
there's other um, issues with um, uh, pulse oximetry, but I suppose that I would, would first try that, but you're right, it doesn't work. And we've, we've had a bit of a horrid run, I think, with our pulse oximeters uh, <laughs> recently, as in, so, you know, whether, um, for whatever reason, I don't know, but, but uh, not necessarily getting, getting reliable, reliable tracings all, all, all the time. Um, so, uh, but absolutely, and if not, then at least you can get an arterial sample and um, and maybe rule even rule out that that uh, that uh, cause if it as you said if it's a, a lookalike. I suppose if anyone's going to try and um, invest in either a a handheld machine for for arterial for for blood gas analysis or or even a a, a benchtop analyzer, um, I think also I would recommend that you, you need to get certain syringes that are, are good for for actually getting arterial blood gas because classically it's always been like glass syringes because there's no um, there's no pressure um, for the arterial sample to fill the syringe without you actually drawing back on it. So that's the idea with an arterial sample. You sort of pre, um, you don't want to have any pressure on the plunger to to interfere with actually getting getting that sample. So they're a bit they're a bit dearer. Um, as in a bit more expensive for 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 uh, that investment as well, but it but it's it, it it is definitely is tricky and fiddly to to get a sample and and then obviously with the species that we're dealing with, we're talking about you know a uh, St Bernard which might be easier to a Chihuahua which uh, might be slightly more challenging. Mm, correct, correct. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think that there are definitely limitations there, and you know if you are thinking about investing in a blood gas analyzer you know look at all of the machines available like um like you mentioned you know what syringes are required and also the maintenance of of those machines as well you know do they require cartridges which are can be quite expensive or do they just require reagents and so you know each test cost is actually low but maybe the initial investment is high and i think there might be some blood gas machines that you can have on loan as well from from what i understand yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there are, but it, it's it, absolutely uh, you know the bench side tests that we're very fortunate to have. They 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 might be cheaper to run the individual samples, but we we run a lot. But also we don't we, we often don't factor in the ongoing maintenance and the time it takes just to just to keep those machines uh, operational, which um, which sometimes is a lot longer than than others. Whereas maybe the ex- more expensive cartridge machines might be better if you're not doing it on every patient for, yeah. for example you know mm. with less, less long-term sort of maintenance of of uh, of that yeah I, i'd imagine yeah I'd, I'd imagine it depends on what you're what you're um what you're doing as as well um i suppose i should i should uh, i should definitely know this but but we're all probably slightly different in our approach but do you always uh do a blood gas analysis uh, on oxygen or off oxygen or does it depend uh that's a very good question uh, <laughs> um it depends on you know what i'm asking myself so you know if i um okay so if i'm thinking about you know does this um dog need oxygen so i'd want to obviously off oxygen when i'm taking my sample um and just actually a, a keynote i just wanted to mention before i completely forget to mention this is you know if you have your patient on oxygen and you want to measure a sample while the patient is off oxygen you need to wait about five to six minutes before you take the sample on oxygen sorry off oxygen on room air which is 20 percent um um, FiO2 of 20, 
So um, say if I've got a patient who is, you know, maybe receiving, you know, nasal prong oxygen, so an FI2 of maybe 40%, and I'm thinking, do I need to increase the oxygenation? Then you can take the sample while the dog's receiving oxygen and say, you know, what's my um, PaO2 or um, SaO2? So you can you can look at two things, the partial pressure of oxygen in arterial blood or the saturation of oxygen in the arterial blood. Um, they're the two figures I'm looking at in the arterial blood gas sample. So, um, you know, ideally, you know, I want my... PaO2 above 80. I know 80 is low, but I want it at least, um, you know, above 80. And I want my, you know, SaO2, you know, at least above, you know, 95, ideally, um, even though they're not perfect numbers. Um, the other thing I sometimes, um, especially, you know, we do see a lot of critical patients here is, you know, deciding, you know, do they need to be on the on the mechanical ventilator or not? And often that's one of the key reasons why we perform arterial blood gas in our, our intensive care units. Um, and so I always think of 60 as a magic number for our indication of mechanical ventilation. And if I get an arterial blood gas sample and my PaO2 is less than 60, so less than 60 is what I define as severe hypoxemia, or my CO2, so we can also look at carbon dioxide in our arterial blood if our CO2 is greater than 60, so severe respiratory acidosis, so severe hyperventilation, um, then they need to go on a mechanical ventilator. And in those t cases, I want the animal to be on oxygen. So it's severe hypoxemia while the dog is receiving some kind of supplemental oxygen. And if they're still severely hypoxemic, that's when I would decide to put them on mechanical ventilation. Yeah, so it's 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 very useful for for that, isn't it? I, I think I, I agree with you. I think it depends on what question you're asking, whether you have you test them on oxygen or or off oxygen supplementation. Because if it's you want to know whether you need to up your therapy or decrease your therapy, then it it does depend whether you want them on oxygen or off oxygen. And I suppose I, I'm probably a bit more bit more slack than than you and, and maybe you just turn off the oxygen for for a couple of minutes <laughs> but i probably know it's going to take me at least a couple of minutes to get a sample in the in the that's <laughs> in the, right that's right it does usually take a few minutes so, so you can account for that <laughs> so, right. so so i wait for wait for a, a bit anyway um but but i, I think uh, i think i think that's uh, that's great to do, do you think there's anything um else that uh, that you think is good to know starting off looking at um a blood gas or, or or any any particular resources that you found uh, helpful mm. um to be honest i think when i first started looking at it i was looking at you know because i think it is very daunting especially when i certainly was not taught this when i was at vet school and you know some of these um, I wouldn't say it's a new intervention, but, you know, things that we, we weren't doing commonly back then, you almost have to start teaching yourself in some way and finding your own resources. Uh, um, I was, um, you know, I I was and still currently a member of vin.com um, and they uh, that's where I found a very user-friendly step-by-step guide on that. Um, so I found that, that very helpful. Um, I know it's becoming a lot more popular these days, so there are definitely a lot of um, CPD and lectures out there and I think going to a lecture where someone's speaking to you face-to-face, -face, I think that can be very helpful um, because I do think some of the textbooks can be a little bit um, daunting and complicated. 
I think a lot has changed, right? In the last in the last fifteen years, sort of. So we, since we uh, graduated, hey, that there's more more uh, um, information out there, but it's easily accessible. I think there's there's lots of information in YouTube videos about how to read blood gas analysis because yeah. it's the same principles. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a person or a guinea pig. You know, it's the same principles of, about how to interpret this. Um, that it's not that that uh, animals are, are sorry. It's not that the animals we treat are radically different to to, to people in this in this regard. I suppose it's just maybe the pHs are slightly different, but not really, and mm. not really worth uh, worth considering. Um, do, do you? Uh, I suppose do, do you uh, look at um, anything else in particular, in the, the blood gas, or 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 not 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 really um, anything else? So do you, do you look at the the lactate, for example, or chloride in particular for the acid acid base status? Mm-hmm. Or you always look at the um, the base excess, as you as you said. Okay, um, you can look at some some other things like um, the lactate as well. And um, some of you might know that often, you know, we we use lactate as a guide for fluid resuscitation. So if an animal is in severe shock, um, the lactate will increase, um, saying that it does actually take quite a bit of time or severity for that lactate to be increased. So just because the lactate is normal doesn't mean that the animal is not in shock, if you know what I mean. Um, so I often look at that. Um, chloride can be also helpful because chloride can contribute to metabolic acidosis. And actually that's an interesting thing um, to consider when we're thinking about our fluid therapy as well. If we're picking a solution such as um, 0.9% um, sodium chloride, which actually has a much higher chloride content than, say, something like um, lactated ringers or Hartmann's, that can actually cause a metabolic acidosis. So um, I think that's kind of an interesting fact, especially when we're thinking about our fluid therapy and fluid resuscitation. Um, yeah. Cool. Those kind of things. Do you think there's anything else if you were if you were starting out looking at uh, acid base that you think you should know, or do you think we've uh, we've covered most things? I think we covered most things. Um, I think one thing about the arterial blood gas, I think we we haven't quite touched on is, um, you know, what other things can we do when we've got we're measuring arterial blood gas while an animal is off oxygen, so receiving room air. Um, and this comes to, you know, when I'm thinking about my, my differentials about, you know, why is the animal hypoxic or not? You know, is it, um, we talk about VQ mismatch, and broadly speaking, I think VQ mismatch is ventilation perfusion mismatch, and that occurs when there's um, pulmonary disease. So if I'm thinking of, or pleural space disease, which can then cause pulmonary disease, shall I say, um, so if you if you take an arterial blood gas um, on room air, what you measure is the um, alveolar to arterial gradient, what we call the AA gradient. Um, don't ask me to um, spell out the exact formula right now, but if you do a Google, you'll find it very easily. Um, and if there's a high AA gradient, then it means that there is VQ mismatch, so it's likely to be pulmonary or pleural space disease. Um, if the AA gradient is normal, then it's actually extra pulmonary. So, you know, could it be a hyperventilation or upper respiratory tract issues? So sometimes that can be useful if we're kind of questioning ourselves, you know, is this Labrador dyspneic because of aspiration pneumonia or is he actually dyspneic because of laryngeal paralysis? So, so I think that can be helpful. Um, a little um, cheating thing I do instead of the AA gradient, um, 
I can mention the 120 rule. Um, so whoever, or actually myself, can be also a little bit lazy sometimes or time constraints. So rather than calculating the AA gradient, there is one thing called the 120 rule. So what you can do is um, if you do your PaO2 plus your PaCO2, um, that should be normally greater than 120 if the VQ, um, VQ is normal. If you do PaO2 plus PaCO2 and that's less than 120, it means you've got VQ mismatch and likely, you know, pulmonary or pleural space disease there. So that's my little, my little tip there. And uh, I think that's a great tip and, and uh, maybe a, a great way to, to end it. Otherwise, I think we're, we're going to start talking about the, the uh, steward approach to acid-based disturbances <laughs> and, um, and my, my head will explode. So, so we'll wrap it up there. But many thanks, Donna, for, for, uh, for coming in and, and not under dress at all to, uh, to have, a, have a chat to Brian and I. Um, and uh, and thank you for for listening. So so don't forget to hit that subscribe button um, on your Android or uh, or fruit based device, and that way you you won't even have to worry about missing a podcast. So if you could leave us a five star review, that would be great. And and just make sure to uh, you know share share this information with your your uh, colleagues and and friends, uh, and get them to listen to the show as well. So we'll place some show notes and some links um, to some articles about how to approach like acid base disturb uh, acid base. Um, um, interpretation into the into the uh, show notes so if you just type in rvc clinical podcast into your search engine it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast and please get in touch so you can either email me dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye